Tell me, how did you and, and Phil meet your husband? Ay, 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 ay. We met in July in Carborough, North Carolina, on a friend's porch. And I was immediately struck by this tall, handsome man. And my life changed in that instant. How, you old, know, how old were you when you met? I was 22. I was 22. Just a mere young thing. <laughs> and he was... You know, when you meet someone and you feel like you've known them your whole life, that's what it felt like. We talked all night long, and we found that we had so much in common. It felt like I was meeting someone that I had known but forgot that I knew. And um, it just was magic. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. And would you introduce yourself? Uh, I am Nina Freelon. I am a lover of Brussels sprouts. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. I love dogs. Not so much cats, but I can get with them a little bit. Um, I'm a singer. I'm an improvising human being. And I am also a wife. And how, what, what was, how did your relationship develop? I mean, did you both feel this way, or were you feeling this way, but he had to come around to it a little bit? Or was it mutual, oh, we don't want to leave each other now that we found each other? I think it was mutual, and maybe even a little more on his side than mine. Um, he was talking in that first conversation about family about how much he wanted to be a father, which is probably not the best thing to do, like when you first meet somebody. Because <laughs> it's like, uh, I just met you. Um, and he was ready before I was ready, I think, to make that commitment. I think we knew we wanted to be together, but I'm not sure I was ready for marriage. I was looking at graduate school. In fact, that's what I told my mother. I'm coming down to North Carolina to look at graduate school. And... Um, Meeting him changed my life in every way you can imagine your life changing. How long did you date before you were married? So we met in 1978 in July, and we were married in October of 1979. Not long. He was also a young architect making his way in the world and full of possibility and full of excitement. You know, we didn't have much money. We had a tiny house, like a teeny tiny house. <laughs> it was our little nest. We lo- I loved it. We had a dog, a really, really ill-behaved dog. Um, we had each other. Nina gave birth to a son, Dean, and then a daughter, Maya. You, you'd heard him talk about kids and family the first night you met him, but yeah. what was it like to see him... Now, actually, as a father, to, to, to have that family. Such a great dad. Such a great dad. Something in him blossomed. Something in him emerged that maybe he always wanted but never could express. I mean, a kind of love that just made him whole. Um, he loved being a father. I have pictures of him holding two sleepy babies, one in each arm, 
and he was in heaven. He Mm. worked hard to be a great provider, but more than a provider, he was daddy. And he 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 just he just loved it. He loved it. It a natural nurturer. About eighteen months after Maya was born, they had a third child, a son named Pierce. You were dealing with three car seats at the same time. Yes, yes, we were. So we clearly didn't know what we were doing. I mean, now, of course, I feel like a genius. But back then, it was like, oh, my God. Um, But it it was a barrel of fun. I, you know, we both were creative parents, and so we tried we, we tried to share that love of creativity, and we went with the kids. The kids led us and taught us in a lot of ways. Pierce was three years old when he directed the family in our first family play. <laughs> and we all had to do what he said. He, fl- he had a whole narrative, a whole story, and we had to play the roles. And he told, no, no, don't do that. You stand over there and don't move because there's twimmins and there's women's and there's lightning. On and off go the light switches. Ah, ah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, the thing I remember most vividly about twimmins and, and women's <laughs> was the characters in the trees. They lived in the trees. They were like tree people. And I just have this vivid image of like lightning striking and you see these people kind of living up in the trees. Pierce Freelon. Pierce was always extra. He was, you know, the youngest child. Extra. So where some children have imaginary friends. He had a group of imaginary friends. J.C., Michael, Gerald, Willie, John John, J.J., Adam, and Peter. And I didn't realize that they weren't real people because he was going to a half-day preschool. I thought they were kids from school. Mm. Until one day we were riding in the car and he points out the window and says, oh, there's J.C.'s mother. Now, this woman had to be 70 years old if she was a day. I was (laughs) like, what that... Are these real people (laughs) or are these play people that I can't see? So anyway, always a very full, rich imagination you have. Along with raising their three children, Nina and Phil Freelon were also building their own work lives. Nina, as a jazz vocalist traveling all over the world, performing. She's worked with Anita Baker, Ray Charles, and Aretha Franklin. And Phil, as the head of a prominent architecture firm in Durham, the Freelon Group. The Freelon Group became one of the biggest and most prominent black-owned architecture firms in the country. What was it like watching your parents' marriage? You know, uh, how was, what was it like watching your father interact with your mother? You know, tell me about their marriage. Yeah. Well, they were they were nice with each other and uh <laughs> I never saw I can't ever remember seeing you fight. Um I don't remember. We fought. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you, you hit it well. <laughs> we we just, you know, waited until you were asleep, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I I I just remember a lot of uh a lot of you know, dad adored you, mom. He did. And, he did. And the way that he looked at you, the way that he would get so excited whenever you had a project, 
Uh, he was always front row, you know, at her shows. He was always either filming or just, you know, the main one clapping his hands. Um, there was always a lot of, uh, you know, mutual support between the two of them. And, uh, and they had different styles. Like, you know, dad was more like the nature guy. He would take us on the hikes. The, the few times mom took a, came on the hike with us, she either seemed miserable or was like slipping on rocks and being awkward. Uh, you know, meanwhile, um, mom was the one who kind of took us like backstage and we got to hang out, uh, you know, you know, behind the the curtain at the Carolina Theater, you know, doing homework or, you know, touching instruments. Um, you know, they just had very different um, purposes and trajectories in life. And being able to see them each in their element and also in, in the elements where we converged was really showed me what kind of healthy co-parenting is like. You know, and use co-parenting in a context usually for people who are not married. But I actually think there are things you, you can learn from that model where you're two individuals who are doing your thing and you come together to raise these kids. You know, when mom would go off on tour, dad would cook and he wasn't the best cook. He had three recipes. He would cook <laughs> a huge tray of chili and that was dinner every day for the whole week. You know, oh, the chili. Uh, you know, it was like he, he did his best, but they were able to, um, you know, balance um, uh, I wouldn't grace use, I for wouldn't each use, other. I wouldn't use the word balance because I had to learn some hard lessons. When I started, when my career took me away from the home, um, Phil did step in. He did care for the children. They were old. You were 10. Um, so I never left, like, little babies. However, they were children who still needed tending. I would try to manage things from the road. And at that time, it was a phone call, like, with a real phone, like, not one you put in your pocket. So, um, you know, I'd call home and, you know, hear that something or another didn't go well, or there was a teacher report card, or just some fuss, some something, and I'd be trying to manage it over the phone. And Phil would say, I'm boots on the ground. You'll just have to be okay with whatever I decide. And then when you get home, we'll have to talk about what I, you know, the choices that I made. And that was really hard for me. Because um, I wanted to still control the mothering um, while I was on the road. I had to grow. And it wasn't comfortable and it didn't feel that great. Um, but we adored each other. What did your father look like? Ooh, what did he look like? Dad was uh, a honey auburn flavored, um, mm, tall, broad-shouldered, and sweet-looking guy. He was so tall that um, suits didn't come in his size, so he had to get them tailored. Some people get things tailored because it's nice to have an Italian tailor. It's like, you know, a thing. But with him, he's... He needed to get things tailored because they didn't make things that fit his frame. And uh, so his suits were always super sharp. Then his casual wear. 
my God, like he was the Hawaiian t-shirt guy. <laughs> he was the awkward shorts guy. He was the fanny pack dad. It was just like, oh. It was pretty bad. You look way too comfortable right now. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, I, I definitely in a professional setting, yes, totally sharp. He was James Bond, okay? But he was like weekend at Bernie's when he wasn't like <laughs> it's true. up there for a you know for a lecture or something. Oh, the fanny pack is the because you kids weren't like Ted. Those went out in the eighties, and he's like, "What do you mean? What well, do you mean? Fanny packs are back now. You didn't hear? Well, okay, they just <laughs> got back then. Yeah, he was super warm and very creative and touchy and and caring and sweet. And, um, you know, he was really into getting into the the details of things. Uh, we would come into a building and he would kind of marvel at the architecture and explain how, you know, different aspects of the engineering of the building worked. Um, he had, in every house we've ever lived in, a dark room where he had these trays of these stinky chemicals that he would put paper into and a picture would appear. And he would be in there with the red light in the dark room, kind of showing us how the picture just magically appears onto the paper. Um, you know, he was the kind of guy who, oh man, there was this really cool video he had on VHS uh, called The Powers of Ten, which showed how the universe at its largest and most expansive has the same shape as it does at its smallest unit. Did you know that a that a, a, a atom being surrounded by electrons is the same shape as the sun being surrounded by, you know, stars? I, you know, what atom would our galaxy be? You know, if it if it was down to scale, that these kind of uh, nerdy. Uh, enterprises. Well, speaking of enterprise, big Star Trek fan, big Dune fan. He was a complete like nerd, <laughs> and uh, I understand that that was actually one of the things that really bonded him and my mom because they had both read Dune and they had never met like another kind of young black person who was into sci-fi <laughs> as much as they were. So we inherited that a love of mystery and um, and really curiosity around science and storytelling. Mm. And uh, and I would say, you know, for my dad, th those were those were the things about him that uh, that really make me smile. Because today, as a parent, even as an adult, I'll see things that conjure a sense of wonder and awe, and I associate him with that feeling. He had been having issues with, um, with his, with his legs. You know, being able to, because he timed himself on his runs, and the times kept getting slower and slower. Then he decided, okay, I'm gonna ride my bike. So he started riding his bike, and then one time he fell off of his bike, and he couldn't explain why he fell. So we started going to different doctors to try to see, you know, an old basketball injury. Is it? You know, what is it? So we went to lots of doctors. He had test after test after test. And they kept kept saying, well, it could be this, it could be that, or it could be this, or it could be that. And so di diagnosis of ALS is a diagnosis of exclusion. They rule out everything else. And nobody wants to say ALS. Nobody wants to say it. Even the last neurologist that we went to 
said, I'm going to refer you to this other doctor at the ALS clinic. And we're like, ALS clinic? Um, I'm not saying it's ALS. I'm just, you know, this way we can. So we um, called to try to get an appointment. It was like February. The first appointment was like July. So we had to pull some strings and call some friends to try to see us get in earlier. And we did. And the doctor said, you know, this this is, I'm 99% sure that this is ALS. Now, when he said it, I think we both were like, huh, ALS, you say. So what is the treatment? And what can we do about it? And then he went on to say that there is no treatment, no effective treatment. And the average lifespan with this condition is three to five years. We'll be right back. Support for This Is Love comes from Shopify. If you've ever had a dream of starting your own business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is an online platform that lets you sell things online and in person and makes it incredibly easy to accept all kinds of different payment methods, figure out how to charge taxes, how to charge shipping, and get detailed, top-down views on how your sales are going. Some of your favorite brands already rely on Shopify to power their online shops, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, and Allbirds. But you don't need to be well-established to use Shopify. They'll help you at every stage of your business and have tools to help people who are just starting out, like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create and analyze campaigns. Shopify grows with your business, no matter how far or big you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash thisislove, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash thisislove now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash thisislove. This week on The Gray Area, writer Derek Thompson makes his case that everything has become a cult. Well, almost everything. Is Taylor Swift the closest thing we have to a mass cult? today I, I i no i think she's the closest thing we have to christianity <laughs> <laughs> it's me find out if you're in a cult this week on the gray area wherever you get your podcasts six months after phil freelon was diagnosed with als he completed one of the largest projects of his career He was the lead architect for the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. His wife, Nina, says she and Phil tried to make sense of their options. And so that's what I began to research. The people who have been diagnosed with ALS, who somehow didn't have to deal with that death sentence. Because when you go into a clinic that's disease-specific, People at all different levels of the disease are there. People who are in wheelchairs. At this point, Phil could walk. People who have assistive devices of all kinds, things to help them speak, things to help them breathe. And looking at them, we're saying, well, that's not us. We must not have this. If that's what this disease is, then that's not us. Over the weeks and months... 
ALS being a, a disease that slowly changes your relationship with your brain and your muscles, we became one of those people. First, we became one of the people who, ca- who walks with a cane. And then we became one of the people that used a, a rollator. And then one of those people who needed a wheelchair. And you, you can see it coming, sort of. But at every step, it's a new grief. It's a new loss. It's a new unraveling, and it's a new grappling with a reality that you didn't want to see. But there it is. He's a right-handed person. His right side was affected. He had to teach himself how to use his left hand. And he did. Um, And at some point, the left and the right didn't work very well. Um, there is a computer thing that they, that they give you. You're supposed to speak words into it for the day when you can't speak. And instead of it coming out in a computer voice, it comes out in your own voice. And so he would spend time every day saying just regular words like table, tree, um, hopscotch, stuff building a library of communication. And he always did it with the office door closed. And it was so hard for me to, because I loved his voice. I loved the sound of his voice. Um, I just, I couldn't imagine a time when he'd need to speak to me through a device with his recorded voice. With every loss, he had something to teach us about grace. Now, how did he? How did he accept? No complaints. No, why me? No, you know, always the optimist. He didn't have to teach himself how to be an optimist. That's the way he was. Lucky for him. Because if you had to, in the face of this horrible diagnosis, then learn how to be optimistic, it would have been tough. He wasn't afraid. He said he wasn't afraid. He said he was was ready. And, God, I wish we'd had more time. I, I, I just wish we'd had more time to hold each other's hands. You know, I I told him I I fully expected to hear from him once he got over there. But I didn't want it to be like any rattling chains, none of that. I don't really I don't really do that. Direct messages. You want to Direct. Clear? I want to know it's you, <laughs> but then I don't want to think it's scary. And I don't want it to be so fluffy that it's like a butterfly. Was that you? Or is that just a butterfly? So he said he would let me know and he has time after time, let me know that it indeed is him and that he is okay. Not only is okay, he's still learning things, he's still doing things. But for me, I miss the physical presence. I mean, I miss 
the physical, the, everything I really miss, the sound of his voice, his hand on my shoulder, um, his laugh, they're all tied to a body that wasn't working very well. Still, I miss it. One of the things that I realized about being one of his primary caregivers is that, uh, you know, as he lost abilities, he relied more on the village around him to to step in and to do the things he wasn't previously, you know, that he was previously able to do that he had lost the ability to do as efficiently. And um, I found that it, it's really a blessing to be that arm that can't work, even if you're, you know, feeding them or whatever, helping them shave, like the, the, those actions, uh, be, being able to be his arm, you know, or his legs uh, or his back, you know, um, was a really sacred and special uh, responsibility. One of the things I didn't realize until he went through this metamorphosis was that uh, we didn't touch very often. So, like, when I see my dad, of course, I hug him. You know, if we're at a basketball game, we're like, ah, you know, we're getting excited. We're rah-rahing with the rest of the audience. But there wasn't a lot of intimate physical touch. And, uh, you know, as as my dad lost the ability of his legs, for example, one of the things that I was one of the only family members strong enough to do was, like, lift his leg and help him stretch and exercise. And he had nurses and people who would help with that stuff, too. But, you know, my mom can't lift. He's 200-something pounds. She can't really toss him around like I can. And I would come and, you know, take hold of his thigh. You know, I, I had the strength to be able to push his heel back. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine, like, you know, when you're in a fully autonomous body and you have something in your back, you can just move around. But when you can't do that, it requires a lot of physical effort and strength to be able to contort a body that's frozen. And, um, and, and I had the privilege of being able to do that for my dad. And it, and it, it conjured a special kind of intimacy that we didn't have before physical intimacy. Um, and when you say, I love you, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue. When you say I love you, it's manifested in the things you do and the things you don't do on a daily basis. Those moments of intimacy that you speak of, there was an, there was an agreement that he would receive and an agreement that you would give and nobody ever spoke it. That's love. But who knew? Who knew that you'd be called upon in any given moment to be that? You have to be willing to accept a gift like that. It's a tough gift. Can you help me raise my arm? Because my arm, I can't raise it by myself. And can you raise my arm with joy and with um, that humble acceptance that you just spoke about that it's an honor to be able to do it and not make somebody feel some kind of way for needing that kind of help. Now, we had this land out in northern Durham on a lake 
that we thought we would build a tiny house on where we could go on the weekends and he could fish and I could be in the tiny house away from the mosquitoes. <laughs> um, but the diagnosis changed the design and changed our thinking about universal design, about what would a house look like that allowed for someone who had some level of disability but not sacrifice the modern aesthetic that Phil loved and the spaciousness and the openness that we both loved. So that's what he designed. It's a spacious... When you look at the house, it is a universal design house. You you may not be aware that the doorways are a little bit wider than standard to allow a wheelchair to go through. You may not notice that there is a... Um, you know, an elevator behind a frosted glass. Um, it's not obvious. It doesn't look like, hi, I'm an elevator. Uh, it's hidden in a very aesthetically pleasing way. There's light everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is the space that he passed away in. And nature is everywhere pressing her heavy body on us the yeah. whole time. Whether it's winter, every window you look out, it's like a new... Picture, you know, because every day it's it's a little different. And it was a beautiful and a lot of outdoor spaces, a big mm -hmm. deck that wraps around. So he spent a lot of time uh, toward the end of his life sitting outside listening to the birds and just vibing and enjoying. Bathing and in the sun. Bathing in the sun and just, yeah. We'll be right back. Support for This Is Love comes from Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with a matching engine built to help you find quality candidates fast. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Indeed leverages more than 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. That way, their matching engine is constantly learning to find you the right candidate. You can get unparalleled access to job seekers with more than 350 million monthly unique visitors globally and an extended reach through Glassdoor. All of this means you can cut down on the time you spend looking for the perfect candidate and spend that time focusing on everything else that's on your plate. Listeners of This Is Love can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash ThisIsLove. Go to Indeed.com slash ThisIsLove right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash ThisIsLove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You might need Indeed. At a certain point, Phil had to be sleeping in a um, hospital bed. So that meant I had to leave the marriage bed. That was hard. But I slept on a, co a cot next to him. And I, when I say cot, that's exactly what I mean, like army cot. It could have been something nicer, but I don't know. We just didn't go there. So I was always there because, you know, and he was always saying to me, go upstairs and sleep in the guest bedroom. But I'm like, I can't hear you up there. And I probably wouldn't sleep well up there either. I'd rather be here on the cot. So when he passed away in the room that we had shared as our bedroom, I was suddenly afraid. 
of everything, not afraid of him, but it was so spacious. It was so, I wanted, I wanted a, I wanted a tiny space. I wanted a space that I could, like a cave. Anyway, I moved into the guest bedroom and I wasn't sleeping. And every knock, every ping, every sound was a scary sound. Um, I had a dog, um, and so he was my buddy. Um, it was just a very strange time. I mean, I wasn't sleeping well. I was getting woken up by all kinds of dreams and notions. And some weeks after that, I started recording my dreams and notions and saying them into my tel- into my phone because they were so seemed so alive and so just to get it out of my head I was saying it into my voice memos not for any other reason than okay if I say it will I be able to sleep then but energy was flowing through me so strongly um and I don't think it was anything different than grief but it just felt like like I was vibrating and um it really wasn't until I began moving with that flow that things seemed to calm a bit. Not go away, but calm a bit. People don't really, well, maybe maybe people do, I don't know, write about this grief euphoria. It's weird. It's really, it's a really weird thing. When you're a full-time caregiver, a lot of that energy is spent caring for your beloved. When that person passes away, a vacuum opens up like you would not believe. I went through the house. I got rid of everything that looked like it belonged to a person who was sick. Medical stuff. Medications, machines, um, pads, stuff. All that. She called me up. She's like, but just get it out of here. Get it out of here. Get it all out of here. I don't care. Get it out. Get it out. I don't care. I don't care. Just get rid of it. And people from all over will come and offer if there's anything I can do. And you can't even think of anything that they could do. I thought for a moment about leaving that home, go live somewhere, anywhere. But I, you know, wherever you go, your grief is with you. So there's like no place. Go move in with one of your kids. Get a roommate. Move to Hawaii. I mean, wherever you go, it's going to be there. So, um, you know, learning to live You know, Phil said to me, I want you to keep singing. I want you to promise me that you will keep singing. And I promised him. But I wasn't sure I could keep the promise. Before Phil Freelon died, Nina began working on a record for him as a birthday present. His favorite songs, jazz interpretations, music from his growing up in Philadelphia. They were all songs they both loved. Nina says it was going to be like a soundtrack to their lives. But then she stopped, halfway through recording. She says she wanted to focus on being a caregiver, and she left the record behind. After Phil died, family and friends started asking Nina if she was going to finish the record. I only knew one thing, that it was going to be impossible to pretend that I wasn't hurting and sing. So... It was like, whatever, 
is there is what's going to have to be there. So I recorded four tracks, five tracks, um, and what I found was a brokenness, um, a change that felt more authentic than I could believe was possible. It, it, it rang true for me. And so that recording project became a container for my grief in a very real, I could pour into it my longing, I could pour into it my question, I could pour into it my belief that I could reach him through sound, and, um, and that the love wasn't annihilated by death. Take it, don't take it, love it, don't love it, it's my truth. And I just finished up the mastering and the recording and walked away. No touring, because we were in the middle of COVID by then. No big, splashy anything. Just here it is. And I also had the sense that if I didn't record this record, there was nothing behind it that I could do. There was no record I could do but this one. So at its ultimate, a container for the grief. She called it Time Traveler, and it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Jazz Vocal Album earlier this year. Pierce turned to music in his own way, making an album using archival recordings of four generations of his family. It's called Black to the Future. He was also nominated for a Grammy for Best Children's Record. It was the first time a mother and son had been nominated in the same year. It's a, it is a healing practice. Literally, the vibrations of the voice are a somatic healing practice for a broken body. I believe that. In 2012, Phil Freelon told an interviewer, We do work for everyday people. We think that it's very important for the average person to experience beautiful, inspiring architecture, not only when they go to a famous building, but every day. If you're looking for Phil Freelon, there are signs of him all over the country. In addition to the Smithsonian's Museum of African American History, he designed the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, the Durham County Human Services Complex in Durham, the Harvey B. Gantt Center in Charlotte, the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of African American History and Culture in Baltimore, Emancipation Park in Houston, North Carolina Freedom Park in Raleigh, the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum in Jackson, and the Motown Museum expansion in Detroit. He's been called the most significant African American architect in recent history. How has your understanding of grief and life and family changed since Phil passed away? If I were to use an analogy, like Phil used materials in his practice. Steel, concrete, 
all kinds of materials that added to the strength of the overall finished product. In grief, my entire self was disassembled. And I'm still trying to find the right materials and the ways to build a scaffolding around um, this new me um, that reflects Phil's presence. There is no not knowing him. 40 years, we were together growing. And I'm still growing with him. Only he's not in his body. And I'll have to tell you, some days that feels like a really raw deal. It's like, you know, boy, this is kind of jive. But grief is life in its... I mean, who gets out of that? I have learned a few things. I'm not an expert. I'm not a grief expert. But I can tell you one thing. I can tell you she don't have no no, uh, watch or calculator or a yardstick. She sits with you and she will be as patient as she needs to be until you acknowledge her. There is a side of her lessons that are so hard that you see her as enemy. And then there are, there, are, there are these ridiculous moments that just make you like, I'm not laughing right now, but that thing right there is kind of funny, strange, ironic, whatever. And there are these transformative moments that happen that you could, there was no record for me without the grief that I am still going through. I'm changed. I'm I'm forever, forever changed. And hopefully, as the years go on, I will understand more and more what that change means. This is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Katie Bishop is our supervising producer. Our producers are Susanna Robertson, Jackie Sajiko, Libby Foster, and Samantha Brown. Our technical director is Rob Byers. Engineering by Russ Henry. Learn more about the show on our website, thisislovepodcast.com. Nina Freelon has a podcast called Great Grief. We'll have a link in show notes. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at This Is Love Show. This Is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more great shows at podcast.voxmedia.com. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is love. Love.